Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Welcome, welcome to it. Welcome to it. The Bible Geek. I'm your host, Robert M. Price. Robert M. Price, host of the Bible Geek. Tribes of Israel, and of course, this was a pseudepigraph. Uh, he didn't write it. There's the incarnation of God. Right? Why in the specific, just amazing book, the Bible, the Bible Geek, Robert M. Price, Robert M. Price, host the Bible Geek, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible Geek, Robert M. Price, Robert Price, Price, host the Bible Geek. What do you say? Ready for a Bible Geek? Uh, you might think I haven't done one in a week or so, but I sort of did. I was uh, on with uh, William Albrecht, a uh, Roman Catholic apologist, as self-described, and great guy. Uh, he uh, and I had a dialogue about uh, the canon, especially the um, Catholic versus Protestant um canons and uh, especially the apocrypha and it was really fascinating and uh, it was kind of a unofficial bible geek episode i'll see about getting it uh, included in the uh, catalog of bible geek stuff but i know some of you tried to access it and found the link to be broken but it's been fixed now and uh, i announced it uh, on uh, on my uh Facebook page and um, having a little trouble finding it. I'm no wizard with this stuff, as if you didn't know. Okay, uh, I would like to get to some uh, questions here. Robert Jace is the first. He says, uh, Good New Year, very slightly elder than I thing. Uh, that's me, an elder thing. I was running through many of my usual favorite problems with Christian dogma when I had a thought about Jesus' supposed harrowing of hell, the time between his death and resurrection when he supposedly traveled to Hades or hell and freed the poor captive spirits there. The thought was, why were there any spirits in Hades or hell anyway. Christian dogma says souls go to Hades slash hell only after the day of judgment, which won't occur for more than a thousand years after Jesus returns to earth, given the millennium and all that. Uh, so there shouldn't have been any souls to harrow. In fact, as Satan and his demons supposedly have full range over earth, why would any of them be in Hades uh, either? It must be worse than Detroit. Uh, any idea how such a heretical idea became dogma? Well, actually, the idea of a sort of a holding cell for souls, uh, righteous and wicked, uh, is uh, to be found pretty far back in the uh, Old Testament, which shares the, the Sumerian and Babylonian, etc., notion of uh, Sheol, and uh, which is a kind of a netherworld where uh, the departed lead a shadowy existence. Sometimes it seems like references to that are just sort of uh, poetic ways 
ways of uh, talking about being dead in the grave, but but sometimes it it does imply belief that there was such a place. Job somewhere mentions uh, the teraphim, I think it is, uh, which is another version of the word, the rephaim, departed souls who are swimming around in the waters under the flat earth. And, uh, oh, um, it's like when people even today say, see you in hell, uh, they're kind of like Han Solo does in the second Star Wars movie. Um, that's, it's, uh, they kind of mean, well, you and I'll soon be dead, both of us. Uh, and, and it's, sometimes you get the impression that's what it means in the Bible with Sheol. But this passed on into the New Testament period, uh, so that in the book of Enoch, this is spelled out, and uh, the notion that uh, in uh, the story of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke, it implies there is a kind of holding, I mean, it doesn't mention a resurrection, but Luke apparently figured that uh, it uh, was compatible with one as uh, that uh, elsewhere he he does mention the resurrection of the dead. So apparently you go to one place or the other immediately upon death. I don't think the Pauline epistles imply that because they speak of those who sleep. Well, there's no uh, absolute uniformity among the biblical writers about stuff like this even. I mean, you think it's sort of an important one, uh, but there's there's no clarity on that. Uh, but um, the uh, uh, in Revelation, which you're, you refer to, it does say that uh, uh, hell or Hades literally gave up its dead for the judgment, implying that they were already having a rough time someplace, uh, so they had not faced the final judgment, which would be a kind of formality, really. Uh, and uh, there, I mean, uh, depending on which part of the intermediate uh, world, the twilight zone, they were in, uh, you'd think the verdict was really already anticipated, because uh, I'm guessing that they got from Greek religion slash mythology the idea that Hades was divided into the Elysian fields where the righteous went and had a good time, and uh, and um, Tartaros where the giants and the titans had been imprisoned in primordial times, and uh, where the wicked went uh, to uh, be imprisoned in the darkness, tortured. I don't know, but if uh, if uh, the rich man and Lazarus is uh, a piece of that belief, yeah, because uh, after all, um, Lazarus, the poor beggar, goes to be welcomed, embraced by Abraham way far away from this pit of torment, uh, as he describes it, and uh, Honest Abe tells him, uh, gee, I'm, I'm sorry, but there's a vast gulf between us. I, I can't even give you a drink of water. Well, that's the uh, the intermediate state. And uh, uh, so Old Testament, Sheol, place where everybody goes to live a kind of miserable half-existence, not active torment, but sort of like just being stuck at a bus station forever. Uh, New Testament, uh, Hades, um, generally a fiery place, but uh, it's insofar as it's based on the idea of Sheol, uh, it's not necessarily a hell of torment, but eventually you do have the division into the two areas in an intermediate state. And this is spelled out, by the way, why are the demons said to be in hell? Well, 
in, I believe it's the book of Jubilees, it explains that after the fall of the angels, Mastema, who I gather is supposed to be Satan, but he's the leader of the revolt of the angels in that book, he uh, says to to God that since his job henceforth is to tempt and test people, he's going to need uh, a staff. And so he gets a third of the fallen angels uh, to uh, fly around with him in the lower heavens to tempt mortals, uh, whereas uh, two-thirds of them are exactly like the titans and the giants in Greek mythology. And the reference to them is very clear in uh, uh, first and second Peter and Jude and uh, various other works that they're in chains under the earth. Uh, and so they apparently get spat out also for the judgment, but they wouldn't be where they are in the meantime if they weren't already pretty much uh, headed there. Anyway, um, the uh, the idea of um, the harrowing of hell, now that's yet another thing it's it, well by the way i should say that i i'm kind of thinking that the notion of the intermediate state in which people have implicitly already been sorted out into the sheep and the goats so to speak uh and then the resurrection as much as a thousand years later right uh after the second coming, that looks to me like a theological harmonization, an attempt to get two disparate views of the afterlife uh, together somehow, as sort of like the messianic secret was, you know, let's patch up the theology here, or maybe both could be true somehow. Who knows, though, but it kind of looks that way to me. Um, now, what what's the origin of the harrowing of hell? I think that this is a uh, a kind of uh, orthodox um, retooling of the Gnostic salvation notion that the, uh, the the Gnostic redeemer who was somehow identified with the man uh, the uh, man of light the primordial man the heavenly Adam uh, who who was ripped apart by the archons and his photons used to enliven the the inert material creation by the demiurge uh, well I think the the, the redeemer visits the earth. He goes down from the glorious heavenly pleroma into the disgusting, uh, muddy earth, and he his goal is to find the imprisoned souls, uh, the sparks of, of the divine that are uh, trapped in the material bodies of at least some human beings, then to awaken them to their true origin and destiny, to enable them to rise uh, above uh, the earth uh, through the heavenly heavenly spheres and to elude the the archons who were guarding the the spheres of the planets the crystal spheres in which they are set uh like uh guards on the berlin wall trying to keep people inside east berlin and uh this has been historicized into Jesus as a pre-existent being, the Logos of the Son of God, who comes down among uh, mortals and uh, then uh, uh, saves them. But but then a mutation of that myth is that uh, he there's a, re a kind of a memory that the earth to which the Gnostic Redeemer descends is itself a kind of a hell. And so uh, the, the myth mutates into um, 
Jesus having died to uh, give life to the world goes down further to the basement uh, of the under the earth and uh, uh, saves the people uh, out the righteous from Sheol. Uh, the wicked apparently still uh, still hanging around there. So I think it's it's a two stage mutation of the Gnostic salvation idea and. Uh, so, yeah, you're right. A heresy became a dogma. Uh, let's see. Um, thanks, Robert. Fellow Robert. Uh, this is from Count Lurcula. But he says I need not bother with an accent, so what the heck. I'll just stick with mine. My famous North Carolina drawl. Right? And that really... Okay, I've been looking at various online translations of the letter to the Ephesians by Ignatius of Antioch. I should say from the start that I don't know Greek, but was comparing different versions to try to tra triangulate in a vague way a sense of the original. That, that's a good idea. I always recommend people to read different translations of the Bible to do just that. Yeah, I would like to ask you a few questions about a passage that you might be able to answer. The 19th chapter of this letter relates a strange celestial display of a new and exceptionally bright star, brighter even than the sun itself, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, that all the other stars with the sun and moon gathered around. This is said to have occurred in connection with the mission of Jesus, and it seems faintly to echo the familiar angelic nativity display told in the Gospel of Matthew. But it obviously isn't the same thing and doesn't harmonize with it at all, right? Oh. It isn't even explicitly framed as a nativity display, heralding three secrets collectively, Mary's virginity, the Lord's birth, and his death, all of those events being hidden from the princes of this world. From the immediate context, I gather that Ignatius would actually have timed this display after the Lord's passion, since if it had been before then, the great secret would have been out prematurely. Surely, does that make sense? Uh, yeah, unless somehow he's thinking that uh, this was invisible to the mortal eye. But then who else was it for? I mean, it couldn't have been for the angels to see because presumably the archons could have seen it too. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think you got a good case there. I believe usually this is taken as a reference to the nativity. And uh, it's often taken as evidence that the writer of Ignatius to the Ephesians, probably pseudonymous, uh, does refer to Matthew's nativity, but I, like you, I don't think so. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it is really tough to square this with the, uh, the, the star of Bethlehem business. It's, uh, you have to think that it's just a similar kind of a marker for the importance of, uh, the incarnation that, uh, as, um, uh, Debelius calls it the law of biographical analogy, where celestial phenomena are often said to have marked the birth uh, or the death of a great person, uh, and uh, like a comet signaled the death of Julius Caesar, I think it was, and, uh, that it's just the, the same kind of uh, myth that Matthew is invoking. Uh, and uh, there's, uh, like, there's other strange things, like when 
the Ignatian epistles have a parallel to Luke 24, where Jesus, he seems to be quoting, and see and says to, at the resurrection, take hold of me and see that I am no bodiless demon or daimon, uh, possibly just meaning spirit. Um, if it does, that would be a close parallel to Luke 24, but it's different enough. Uh, you wonder, is this a memory quote from Luke 24, or is it another version of the same story? Same problem arises within John chapter 20, where there's a similar scene, uh, you know, touch me, uh, uh, touch the uh, nail holes in my hands and the, put your hand in the wound in my side and see that it is I myself. Uh, that's like a different version of it, and it's hard to tell whether this is a rewrite of Luke 24, which I kind of think it is, or just a, another version of the same oral tradition beats me. Uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, also, an incidental detail that interests me about the scene is the use of the Greek word choros in English transliteration, C-H-O-R-O-S. All the celestial bodies form a choros around the visiting star, which in four out of five translations is rendered by the English chorus, suggesting that the entire population of the heavens were singing audibly to the ears of the astonished earthlings. However, the text doesn't really say that there was singing, and one translation, I can't find the name of the author, says it was merely a ring and not a backup group holding celestial microphones and rocking out to a praise song. Are both renditions of the word equally valid, do you think? I, I don't uh, know exactly from the... Uh, the Greek uh, word, I, I assume it's, it, it could mean both. I'll have to look it up at some point. But um, I can't help but think uh, that, oh, is it in Job where it says that in the cre beginning in the creation, the morning stars sang for joy? Uh, and uh, also of in the Lucan nativity, the uh, huge host of angels that appear praising God. Well, angels and stars are often supposed to be the same thing somehow. The one stands for the other, or the other stands for the one, or whatever, but uh, stars and angels are somehow identified, and so I would go with a chorus thing in context, too. Ooh, let's see. After this apparition, Ignatius lists the ways in which evil had been conquered and the new age, along with the end times, I imagine, ushered in. Finally, I'm tempted to ask what the poor people on the other side of the planet must have thought when everything in their sky suddenly hightailed it out, uh, leaving it in total darkness for at least a few moments, but I suspect that your guess is as good as mine. Well, uh, I don't think the story presupposes that there was another side of the Earth, because they're probably still dealing with a flat Earth. Uh, and they, they, which is also why they say every eye shall see him. Uh, they're they're not going to be, uh, you know, everybody is going to be on the disc somewhere.
I see that in the Ignatian passage discussed, the apparition of the bright star heralds the newly revealed secrets of Jesus' birth and death, but his resurrection isn't mentioned in this context. Could it be, then, that the bright star was Jesus' resurrection appearance, according to an archaic tradition dating from before the gospel resurrection narratives had taken hold? Did they imagine Jesus as a star ascending visibly in triumph for all the world to see, holding court with the angels, that is, the sun, moon, and stars, and taking his rightful place at the top of the heavens? I know that Ignatius elsewhere, as in the letter to the Smyrnaeans, references a physical anti-docetic resurrection of Peter, for instance, but the letters have a complicated textual history, and not everything in them need to be, need be harmonized with everything else. Um... That is uh, an interesting theory, especially since uh, the uh, there's evidence that some early Christians thought of the resurrected Jesus simply as a light, such as Paul seems to be seeing in Acts on the Damascus Road. It says he's seen Jesus or seen the Lord, yet he's simply blinded by a great light and can't see anything after that for a while. And uh, uh, James M. Robinson thinks that the motif of the disciples initially not recognizing the uh, resurrected Jesus is based on this notion that, well, how could they have recognized him? He was just a blast of light. That could be. I tend to trust Robinson's judgment. I'm not so sure on on that one. And... uh, Never tell you how at the Jesus Seminar once I was sitting next to James M. Robinson, disciple of Bultmann, and I told him, you know, you've uh, written a couple of articles in particular that really changed my thinking, and they're brilliant. And he just turned around and gave me a big hug. Who'd have thunk it? What a guy. Anyhow, um, he could be right on that. Um Oh, and uh, you wonder if possibly if Jesus is being depicted as a bright star that has anything to do with um, uh, the fact that Revelation has Jesus call himself the bright and morning star, Uh, or the fact that uh, Revelation and other early Christian writings speak of Jesus as an angel, and angels are stars. I don't know how to put all that, how to connect those dots, but there may well be something in what you're saying. Keep working on it. Uh, Then finally, he says, incidentally, there's an odd turn of phrase in the sentence right before all this in chapter 18. He was born and was baptized that by his passion he might cleanse water. Cleanse water? The five translations I've read are all similar. What is that about? I think he means uh, consecrating water as the uh, the mode or the medium of baptism, which uh, the, this author certainly would have taken to be more than just a symbolic action, uh, a kind of a, a bath in water uh, signifying the, as, as modern Baptists do, signifying the washing away of sins which took place when you, with the hour I first believed. Uh, because the, the Ignatian epistles also speak of uh, the Eucharist and Holy Communion as the medicine of immortality. Uh, and uh, this, so they, they had a very... Uh, a very almost magical, substantial view of the uh, 
the divine power of of the sacraments of water and baptism and uh and the the bread and wine in uh in uh, communion very interesting yeah. i find those apostolic fathers really fascinating Okay, uh, Sean Kelly, I've just listened to the debate you had with Bart Ehrman last year. One thing kept bugging me. What did Bart mean with all the outer space talk in reference to the crucifixion? Is it common for mythicists to view the passion narrative in terms of ancient aliens? Or was he using hyperbole for effect? Well, uh, right. Uh, now, as we speak, I uh, have a, paint, a beautiful painting on the wall done by my old pal Sam Del Russi, who now uh, is in uh, is in uh, New Mexico churning out masterpieces. And uh, in it, it's the crucifixion is happening, and above it, there are hovering flying saucers bathed in celestial light. Oh, <laughs> I love it! Uh, yeah, uh, but uh, let's see. the The idea is that um, as uh, Earl Doherty and uh, Richard Carrier and I and uh, uh, Acharya S. all think that um, the original idea of the crucifixion was not an earthly execution by religious and political authorities, such as it has been made in the Gospels, but that's historicized, brought down to earth, that as hinted in Colossians and 1 Corinthians, uh, the crucifixion of the Son of God was by the the archons, the uh, evil angels that serve the demiurge, and the principalities and powers, the fallen angels, all the same thing, really. Uh, and um, that, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, that the uh, a kind of a remnant of this is the language of the epistle to the Hebrews in which Christ's mediatorial work is done in the heavenly tabernacle, Though that does not demand that the crucifixion happened in the heavens, it may simply mean that it is there where he offers his blood shed on earth, as, as I kind of think Hebrews does mean. But uh, this, the, the ancients certainly believed stuff like this happened, like one major parallel would be in the Rig Veda, where it talks about how all things were created through the heavenly self-sacrifice of the giant god Purusha, whose name is the same as the soul, uh, implying a kind of a Gnostic view that uh, he his soul is to be found inside of everybody and everything. It's obviously pantheistic. And uh, that this was a sacrifice that gave life to the world, and it was done in the heavens. Uh, so, um, you know, we plus if you tie astrology and astronomy, the same thing back then, into this, that uh, that begins to make even more sense with the celestial cross having to do with the procession of the equinox and, and all of that stuff. Um, but yeah, it, it this presupposes a, an ancient cosmology that. Uh, is sort of parallel to the way moderns who know that the earth is not flat, except for a few weirdos out there, um, know that uh, there's just a huge void beyond the earth. 
And uh, whereas the, the ancients thought that there were several different heavens concentrically above us, that Satan was the prince of the power of the air and that he and his uh, serv- servitors were flying around in the lower heavens and that when Jesus came to the earth, he snuck down through the various heavens uh, and uh, to elude the archons and that when the righteous or the enlightened ones go back to the heavenly pleroma after death, they too will have to get past the archons guarding the various celestial spheres. So this theory says that the early Christians believed that uh, the the sacrifice of Jesus took place in uh, heavens, heavenly spheres above uh, the the earth. And uh, I, I think that is probably true. I think the Gnostic uh, view uh, certainly says that, that the man of light was in the heavens, the lower heavens, when he was assaulted and destroyed by the archons. And I think the crucifixion of Jesus is a historicization of that. Uh, so it's a little misleading to say outer space because they they didn't know there was an outer space exactly. There were concentric heavens or worlds, really. Okay, um, thank you, Sean. Who's up next in the batting order? Ooh, this is kind of a long one, but that's okay. Uh, anyway, this is fascinating, yeah. Uh, this is from... Uh, Raphael Calcivarini, I'm probably butchering that. If so, I heartily apologize. Okay, so get ready. It's a little long, but you'll find it interesting. Greetings, O holy geek, from the depths of a vast South American jungle. A concrete jungle, but a jungle nevertheless. Some time ago, you read my deconversion from Catholicism story on the show. I imagine not a lot of people are interested in my personal faith adventures, but since your listeners seem to seem to Uh, like hearing about other people's relationship with the religion. I certainly do. I thought it would be interesting to share some developments and how I've been dealing with spirituality as an atheist. My past experience as a Catholic had many different aspects, social, intellectual, behavioral, etc. Some of those aspects were definitely destructive, and I was right in discarding them. But with time, I realized that together with the bad parts I discarded, a whole lot of good things that I missed until very recently, or that there were, I must have left out a verb there. Uh, one good part of religious life that I missed is the social aspect. Religion brings people together with an intensity that is difficult to match with other social activities, especially when you live in a huge metropolis like Sao Paulo. Um, Another one was the mystical experience itself. I used to belong to a group called the Catholic Charismatic Renewal, which is kind of a Pentecostal church within the Catholic Church. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know it well. I used to... uh, teach a Bible study in a Catholic congregation for a charismatic group. People not familiar with it can imagine Catholics speaking in tongues while adoring the Holy Sacrament, crying during Mass when the priest starts singing very emotional songs about God's forgiveness and people resting in the Spirit while praying the Rosary. I went through all the mandatory experiences of being baptized in the Spirit and uh, 
helped a lot of brothers and sisters to achieve the same. Hallelujah. And I kind of miss the experience of being in this kind of trance absorbed by the transcendent. Today, I'm an atheist and a rationalist uh, skeptic, and that's pretty much a permanent state of affairs, though I'm not foolish enough to close any doors. But I did miss that feeling of being face-to-face with holiness, the numinous experience, the trance, the oceanic feeling, or whatever it's called. Also, I'm a pretty analytical person with a strong tendency to over-rationalization, sometimes having a way of... Uh, letting the unconscious part of the mind take the wheel for a bit and experiment with the feelings and emotions of the religious experience is fun, relaxing, and happiness-inducing. I've been toying with the idea of participating in religious rituals again for a while to, uh, to recover both the social and mystical aspects of it, but I always felt like it could be offensive to other people to partake in their rituals without believing that there's anything to it beyond the psychological experience. In all my past attempts, I quickly felt like I was being, um, uh, that I was being dishonest. Uh, I didn't question anything and didn't speak to anyone about what I believe or not, but I felt like it wasn't honest to participate without believing. Also, I was very put off by the same moralistic piety and doctrinal naivete that drove me away from Catholicism. A few years ago, my wife started participating in an African-Brazilian religion called Umbanda, there's an article on it on Wikipedia. It says, uh, it's a mix of African, Native, uh, Catholic, and spiritualist beliefs. It's something of a shamanistic religion where mediums, quote, incorporate, unquote, spirits sent by the Orishas to teach people and conduct rituals. Um, as it's not a centralized religion, And being without anything resembling a hierarchy of priests, it's very, very diverse. The variety practiced by my wife's temple is a mixture of demythologized African holy stories with an ethics of personal betterment through service to others. Of course, there's a whole lot of mysticism and supernatural interpretations, but they don't really seem to care about any orthodoxy. Different interpretations and levels of commitment with what is holy theater and what is supernatural reality coexist naturally. Myths are used as allegories, and the ritualistic and ethical aspects tend to take precedence. So I was confronted with a very interesting mix of respect for individual belief systems, very little doctrinal orthodoxy, and a very simple moral message that resonated a lot with my internal compass. I realized that I, um, that I perfectly well uh, in good conscience and without offending anyone, uh, I could embrace a completely demythologized and atheistic version of it. I could interpret all the mystical and supernatural talk as an allegory for a self-searching experience. And I could interpret the mystical experiences, people letting inner voices in their unconscious minds manifest as a way of knowing themselves better. 
Uh, that is what's going on, I think. So I started going there, in part for the social experience and in part for the mystical experience. At first, I thought that the mystical experience wouldn't happen, given my skepticism. I know all the tricks of that trade, the lights, the music, the touch, etc. I've been there and done that. I didn't know if I could go through those experiences again after knowing that they were neurological and psychological phenomena with well known mechanisms. It turns out that it's not that difficult. Knowing the trick didn't make it more difficult to trick myself, and I could have, a, have again the same kind of experience of the holy that I had in the past. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that for people who deconverted and missed the good parts of, of the religious experience, there can be a way of participating in religious activities in an honest, demythologized way. Of course, for me, it was Umbanda because it resonated with my moral compass, but surely different people could still be attracted by Christian churches and re-signify the teachings and experiences so that an honest and sincere participation is possible without sacrificing your intellectual integrity or submitting to self-torturing denial. Maybe the fact that most forms of Christianity seem to abhor personalism and, I guess, uh, well, anyway, and, and seek strong consensus on doctrinal orthodoxy might make it more difficult, but maybe there are Christian churches where this is possible. Do you know of any such churches or of any discussion in literature about experiences of atheists who participated in religion, including the mystical aspects, with sincere but demythologized and atheistic piety? Well, uh, Raphael, I think you've hit on something very important. Uh, I think you can certainly approach religion with a phenomenological understanding of it. That is, here's what is experienced, um, regardless of what it is that brings about the experience, especially since we don't really know, at least we're not thinking consciously, about what generates any experience. Uh, you know, uh, intellectual, psychological, aesthetic, etc. You just sort of take it as it comes. Uh, it's coming from deep wells uh, of of genetics and conditioning and and so on. I think it's a big mistake to to uh, refuse to participate in life that way until you know exactly how it works, because that's going to make it difficult for you to do. Uh, once I was sitting in the Museum of Modern Art, uh, just absorbed by the great Jackson Pollock ca canvas one, this wall-filling, uh, mesmerizing uh, piece of modern abstract art. And uh, I, I just found it, would, it decentered my perception. It seemed to create a portal into another world. I sat there, I guess 15, 20 minutes, looking at this thing, and then a friend of mine who was a, a professor of uh, all the fine arts came and ruined it by sitting down beside me trying to explain how it works. <laughs> no thanks. Uh, and uh, for the same reason, I don't like movies showing the magic behind Star Wars or The Lord of the Rings or whatever. Look, I, I'm I'm happy to be 
enthralled and enchanted by the magic. I don't want to be disappointed by finding out how it works. That destroys the sense of wonder. I mean, you, you don't have religious faith that uh, Star Wars actually happened, right? And nobody thinks that. Uh, it, it's a willing suspension of disbelief temporarily, right? And the same thing, I think, has to be true about religion. If you think it's all a direct supernatural miracle, well, that'll work. Uh, if you have reason to think you know better, as, as I do and you do, that, uh, yeah, this is experience entirely natural and psychological, and uh, here's how it's induced. But you can still get into it. Uh, you know, so what if you know how it happens? Uh, I mean, if, if your love for someone can be explained somehow with neurons in the brain. Does that mean love is not real? It's the experience you're after. Uh, and uh, the same thing is true here. Uh, and uh, if even the idea of, of saying a creed, John Maher did a fascinating book long ago called The Gathering of the Ungifted, where uh, he s said uh, that if you can't recite the creed as a literal affirmation uh, of the facticity of what's described there, so what? Uh, why is there a creed? Uh, it uh, doesn't make the, the tenets of it true. What it does is to allow you to identify with the tradition and the community uh, that put this together. Uh, and uh, that's uh, that isn't deceptive. If somebody then asked you, say, you, you really believe that stuff we were saying this morning? You know, explain what uh, you can of it. Say, well, no, I, I don't really think that this is uh, that there's a heaven above and there's a, a divine guy who answers prayers. I I don't. But these things are wholesome and transformative, like poetry is, and I am happy to be transformed by him. Uh, it, it, to me, this is experience, not philosophy. This is religion, not philosophy of religion. Not that there's anything bad about the latter, but uh, it's like uh, if you enjoy food and then you watch some cooking show and it tells you why it's so enjoyable, because you use a little of this and a little of that. Eh, the only reason you, you would need to know that is if you want to learn how to cook the food you want to enjoy, right? But it doesn't dispel the, the deliciosity of, of the dish, right? Same thing with religion. I don't think there's anything inconsistent or dishonest. Uh, of course, um, people have lied about it. Oh, yeah, yeah, you bet I believe uh, there's 15 persons in the Trinity. Anything you say, uh, they don't want to get kicked out. Uh, and uh, I think, yeah, that is uh, that would be compromising. That would be dishonest. If they cannot tolerate your presence among them, unless you hold a particular belief about the cosmos and all that, well, you know, you're probably not going to be that comfortable there anyway, but I think that there, I mean, there are some religions that consciously know this, uh, Episcopalianism, quite, uh, I mean, not all Episcopalians, but I think they're kind of well known as our forms of Judaism for saying, we are a worshiping 
community. We're, we're not a theological school here. Uh, in fact, when I was a pastor of a liberal sort of Baptist church, I had very little idea what anybody in the congregation believed, uh, because that wasn't really the point. I was talking about how we live our life using wisdom from the Bible and, and other sources. And uh, so I think uh, you're on the right track. And a good book on this uh, would be uh, Don Cupid, that is C-U-P-I-T-T, um, Taking Leave of God. And uh, he's talking about not rejecting religion, but having a, an experiential, uh, I forget exactly the term he, he uses, uh, but a, um, a kind of postmodern second naivete about it, where you're not kidding yourself or anybody else, uh, but you see the, the value in religious experience. I, that book is enormously fascinating in many ways. Taking Leave of God uh, by Don Cupitt, C-U-P-I-T-T. I think that's a real good one. And if you can get a hold of uh, John Maher, which is M-E-A-G-H-E-R, uh, the Gathering of the Ungifted. I think you'd find that helpful also. Yeah, so keep up the good work. Oh, let's see. Here's one from Luther. Not Martin, not Lex. Um, Nearly everything I've read on the subject indicates that the story of Stephen's martyrdom is fiction, or at best, as I understand Eisenman's point on this, a highly fictionalized retelling of an incident involving James. If we allow that the incident is Luke's fiction, my question is this, why does he introduce a nobody who just recently appeared in the story as a meals-on-wheels <laughs> delivery man for Hellenistic Jewish uh, widows, only to then give him the keynote address of the whole book of Acts? Wouldn't the speech and stoning be more effective from some more prominent character, such as a disciple? Yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, if, if it's fiction anyway, you know, why not uh, pick a, a big name? I mean, why not have uh, James, son of Zebedee, give this before he's uh, beheaded, right? I mean, Luke says he was. Why doesn't he have him do this? Uh, I think it, uh, well, the fact that he's an ideal figure is suggested by his name because Stephanos means crown, and uh, he has he wins the crown of martyrdom here. And I think he's an ideal figure. This is what you ought to do. He's kind of an example in the fictive flesh of what uh, Jesus says in the uh, the uh, mission charge slash apocalyptic uh, discourse, especially in Luke, but the others too, that don't worry beforehand if you're on the spot uh, before hostile authorities about what you're going to say. Uh, don't worry. Uh, the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say, or I will give you a mouth uh, to speak what cannot be refuted. And this is kind of an illustration of that happening. Uh, and uh, again, he wins the crown of martyrdom. Uh, it might have something to do with the length and the scope of the sermon he gives, though again, I don't know why he couldn't have had a, a recognizable apostle do it, but 
I think he's right. This I think Eisenman and also Hans Joachim Sheps were right about this being another version of the martyrdom of James that we read about in Hegesippus and depending on how you understand it, Josephus. And uh, that uh, is that uh, that might be have been changed because Luke needs James in chapter fifteen to make the speech about um, how the uh, the Gentiles need not keep the whole Torah, but do have a few minor regulations uh, that he uh, stipulates in the uh, the Jerusalem decree, which he has Paul and Silas uh, promulgate going from church to church. And but he he wants uh, this speech delivered earlier than that because it's the launch pad for Paul's ministry, right? It's really the beginning of the story of Paul, who is uh, cheering on the guys stoning Stephen to death. And the irony is that uh, he's going to have to take what he dishes out or what his buddies dish out. And um, so I, I have a hunch it has to do with that. He wants to use the Stephen story to introduce Paul, but he wants James the Just, the original star of the Stephen story, to still be around when he needs him to pronounce on the Jerusalem decree. But I don't know. Of course, this is speculation on my part. Oh, let's see. By the way, somebody asked me uh, or sent uh, an email that not exactly asking me to clarify this, but saying that they were so baffled that I can be even handed and open minded on um, scriptural topics, but seem to be so closed minded, uh, unwilling to look at evidence and eager to vilify people that disagree with me politically. Uh, and I don't really want to get into that stuff. Uh, just let me say that you need to realize that with biblical historical stuff, this is all a kind of mind game. You can afford to uh, bounce around different theories and have friendly debates, but what is at stake? Uh, it seems to me not a lot. Uh, unless, of course, you're a literalist and you believe, oh, you're going to go to hell if you don't believe what I say is true. But with politics, you're dealing with things that do have repercussions. And uh, there are uh, dangers with certain policies. And uh, so if, uh, if you want to just sit on the fence and be a bystander, you can. But here is a place where I think you really do need to weigh in. And uh, it's uh, and so I uh, my attitude toward different positions on political issues tend to be a, held on a different basis and in a different way because of the gravity uh, of those things. And uh, but I I don't want to debate anybody about that. Uh, you're certainly free to hold whatever view you want, and I have nothing to say about it. But uh, as for why I hold the views I do, uh, I don't want to get into the specifics. Uh, I don't think you would appreciate that. But I don't. I, I see a difference in my approach 
I hope not open-minded versus closed-minded, but it's a different sort of a question that must be uh, dealt with in a, in a different way than the abstractions and speculations of biblical criticism. Anyhow, okay, uh, let's see. Uh, one more here. Oh, <laughs> okay, here's a couple of short ones. Uh, this is from Mark. Uh, what is it? No, I'm sorry. Why is it that Jesus, an immortal being, is tortured, killed, and three days later resurrected, um, is considered a sacrifice at all? This is never asked. It's more like a bad weekend at Bernie's or the death of Superman. Uh, well, he was at least out for six six months or so, I think. Uh, are there any theologians who have brought this up in terms of sacrifice? Is this a nothing burger? Um, Thomas Altizer is one who has dealt with this uh, extensively. Uh, and in the, his uh, fascinating Death of God theology, the the one book that uh, if you're going to read just one that I would uh, recommend is Altizer's The Descent into Hell. I believe that's the exact title. And uh, Altizer is A-L-T-I-Z-E-R. He uh, says that uh, th this idea that the death of Jesus was a sacrifice but is kind of reversed, which would seem to nullify it, right? Uh, it's being, for Jesus to rise from the dead, doesn't that kind of undo what he may have done on the cross? And he says the, the logic of this uh, story of Jesus' sacrifice by a divine death on the cross really would imply that he that the the divine has poured itself out into the profane, uh, into the non-holy world, uh, perhaps to transform it. And he says it's like a Buddhist idea uh, of uh, the, the negation of the divine in order to somehow uh, redeem the secular as secular. It's just enormously interesting, but I, I won't try to beat the whole thing to death here. But it's, uh, I, I'm a, as you probably know, a great fan of Altizer. And uh, I would recommend a couple of his books. I mean, he's written many of them. And well, here's three I would recommend The Gospel of Christian Atheism, then The Descent into Hell. And then decades after that, Living the Death of God, which is autobiographical. But he's written lots of stuff, and, and it's fascinating. And um, so, uh, in fact, I'm going to have an article by him coming out in the next issue of the Journal of Higher Criticism. An amazing man. Ooh, let's see. But I, I think you're right. The, uh, the, the uh, narrative of him dying and coming back i mean there's a very vague and and uh and fading line even in the gospels as to whether he was really dead or not was he dead and came back as in john or is it possible that luke means to say that like apollonius of tyana he managed to cheat death 
uh, it's not that clear, and and that's occasioned by the fact that he he's not dead for long, and if he isn't, is he really dead? Uh, and I mean, it looks more and more like somebody being brought back on the operating table, right? Uh, so uh, there's there's a real problem. I mean, did Jesus have it as rough as the uh, prisoners in Auschwitz? I guess I don't think so. There's a problem there. I mean, you, you hear all the stuff on Good Friday and uh, about the, uh, oh, Jesus died for us and, and what a sacrifice, and you hear the atonement theories, and you would naturally expect that anybody that said that would say, yeah, we miss Jesus, he's gone, but he isn't, right? Uh, it was just a couple of days. Oh, boy. Um, yeah, Jim says, uh, oh, this is a little longer than I... I think I'll I'll leave it right there. I, this next one is uh, pretty long. Uh, but uh, I'm going to go off and do a Lovecraft geek now, and um, you'll tune into that too. So I'll uh, talk to you next time on another exciting episode of The Bible Geek. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Oh,